0: Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Dr. Chris from Capycraft joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Bradley Mitchell from SASFIN to discuss their global equity fund. All that way right, coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. In company news, Glencore posted a record 23% rise in core first-half earnings and cut its debt to below target but failed to increase its interim dividend as higher costs and lower prices for cobalt and other byproducts ate into the company's profits. The company did, however, say it will favor share buybacks over deal-making, but shares in Glencore still fell post the results partly due to worries about the impact of a trade war on Chinese demand. On the currency front, global markets trembled and fell to a one-month low as Turkey's worsening currency crisis persuaded investors to dump equities and emerging markets and flee to safer assets such as government bonds and the dollar. In the meantime, Turkey's central bank has pledged to provide liquidity and cut reserve requirements for Turkish banks, but its meltdown still continued to rattle global markets. And Elon Musk said in a post on Twitter that he is considering taking Tesla private at $420 per share, sending the company's stock skyrocketing, but Tesla's board says that it has not yet received a detailed financing plan from Musk and is seeking more information about how he would take the electric car maker private. He has more on that. Tesla chief executive Elon Musk is considering taking his company off the market. Musk wrote in a post on Twitter, "Am considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. It wasn't clear if Musk was serious, as he has a history of erratic tweets. Tesla did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Musk owns nearly 20% of the company. Its share shot up to over $360 on his tweet.
1: Tesla had a market value of $58 billion as of Monday's close. A buyout proposed by Musk would represent a 20% premium and value the electric automaker at about
0: $72 billion, said our financial it's group too, chief investment officer, Gene this. Goldman.
1: Going private allows company management to focus on long-term growth targets and growth opportunities without worrying about short-term profit impacts. Also, there's less scrutiny. You think about it, you know, fewer public shareholders to take an eye-watching company, also less activist shareholders. I saw a study a couple years ago, a few years ago from McKinsey and Company that talked about private company boards versus public company boards. Private company boards in this study are more nimble, are able to take advantage of more opportunities. Plus, you know, public traded company um, boards tend to be more focused on
2: budgetary controls as opposed to growth opportunities. So we'll see what
1: happens. Separately,
0: the Financial Times reported that Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund has built a stake in Tesla of between three and five percent. Joined now by Trickers Tr- Tr- Krumbring from Capi Croft Trickers. Thanks. I want to quickly mm. touch on the Glencore story, not Glencore itself, but I read that. And I think and calls south africa of course it's not it's global it's jc listed but it's mm. dual listed how do you look at stocks like that british American tobacco would fall into that one mm. bhp another do you look at them as global do you invest them in czar and dollar and uh, how do you play that
2: when construction portfolio i'd like to look at um, risk factors firstly so when breaking up you know stocks into geopolitical Uh, spheres, Uh, I tend to look at emerging markets and developed markets. And uh, commodity producers would fall mostly into the emerging market one. So I'm inclined to buy it locally because locally it's my emerging market. As it being an emerging mm-hmm. market, I'd buy it in local portfolios. Uh, and uh, offshore, for, div- for diversification sakes, um, I tend to uh, focus on other risk factors, which would include um, big industrial or financial uh, multi-listed or, or multinational companies. Um, so, yeah, not the, the likes of extractor.
0: Not the likes of Estrada. You touched on 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 sort of the emerging versus developed. We're seeing today, culminating in, in what's been a couple of weeks of, of a tough space for 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 emerging markets. And my question I was going to put to you is 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 you know, do you look at these emerging markets as offshore? You're saying that to you. It's not so much no. an offshore but yeah. to you. It's emerging versus. Developed and, and, and Turkey,
2: for, if you're there at no. all,
0: would fall into that emerging equation.
2: Absolutely. So that's generally what we do: is local portfolio. I tend to focus on emerging market stocks, uh, and it doesn't make sense when investor diversifies offshore to add even more emerging market yeah. risk exposure when you know, already, you've got so much already. Uh, already, you know. So, um, so. I'm inclined to use the local portfolio to buy double listed um, entities that also has exposure to Eastern Europe or to China, which we do have a lot of. Um, especially in the property space, we have a few that's that's exposed to Eastern Europe or, or Southern Europe and so forth. So we use the, use the local portfolio for that. But when you know you've got an emerging market stock and it's offshore listed and it makes sense on a on a micro from a micro or from a bottom up perspective, you shouldn't you know fall into that hard and fast rule. Um, you I'm know sure. don't buy emerging market. No, you have to f- be flexible around that. And firstly, it's about a bottom up story and be put up. With these risk factors from a, from a top-down perspective, um, but it's more about us for, from for, for, uh, for about the bottom-up story of the company.
0: And that's a good point. If if, if the company is of quality, if the oh. earnings are of quality, if the growth prospects are real, mm. if the risks are what you consider to be fair enough for the yeah. price that you're paying and it happens to be emerging market, well, then so be it. You you don't want to just have a a hard line in the sand that says not at all. Mm. If
2: you find that gem and it's got real prospects, then... then, then And and here's the thing. If it's really a gem and if you're buying it with a decent margin of safety, then you should be able to stomach an emerging market crisis and keep holding that right through the emerging market crisis and come out the other side of the crisis stronger, you know, than you would have. Um, So generally, when clients, you know, the same reasoning, when clients call me and they say, listen, we're a bit scared of a a bear market, uh, you know, we've read this article or that article, and there's a recession on the loom. So generally, uh, the answer would be, go through your portfolio. If at least 80% of the portfolio, you're not willing to hold through a recession, you know, get rid of those. And and limit it to about a 20% more speculative side to your portfolio. That you are betting on you know, a continued bull market or a specific case. Um, but 80% of our portfolios should be not recession proof, but you're willing to sit with it through. Uh, uh, even a 1930s type depression.
0: Yeah, I, I take your point. Not recession-proof, but recession surviving, surviving and, yeah. and coming out the other side. Because recessions, exactly. are as sure, as, as day will follow exactly. night. Exactly. And it almost seems that emerging market crises. So if we go back to the crisis of ten years ago, that originated in the states. Twenty years ago, '98 was emerging markets, Asian tigers, Russia, mm. and we are. I mean, we're seeing a, a bit of contagion. There was some e- pressure on Italian bonds today. Whether that was directly related, who knows? Are you? Are you? Taking this seriously, are you, or, you know, worried about it spreading wider, or you're taking a view perhaps that is, you know, we re- own quality. You talked about your 80. percent You're happy if this is the you know a, a big event that we're going to be talking about no. for decades to come. Portfolio needs to be positioned for anything. Mm. Uh,
2: at, at the risk of sounding like an EU bureaucrat, <laughs> you know, this is not Greece. <laughs> Turkey is not Greece. Um, there's this big difference. Greece was a government debt problem. Yeah. So, uh, the Turkey government debt is quite low, it's about 30% of GDP. Uh, it's going to get more expensive funding that because most of that debt, or a big portion of that debt, is is um, externally funded it 's listed in uh, in its euro bonds, um, so as the currency depreciates your your commitments your coupons yeah. that you have to pay on that gets more expensive. The real problem in Turkey is not government debt it 's um, firstly before, before we get into what erdogan has, has done is um, sounds like a character from middle earth you know from the <laughs> erdogan but he's, uh, before we get into what he did is uh, uh, you know, the low interest rates in the euro area has has led to a lot of European countries on the periphery of the European nations borrowing in, in euros um, a lot of debt, corporates, and uh, especially the, the banks, and um, especially the Turkish banks. So about 50% of total tur- tur- you know, Turkey debt, 50% of that is externally funded or is, is listed or, or, uh, in, in, a, in, in a foreign country, mostly euros. So that makes a big difference when the currency devalues. It didn't make a big difference up until about two years ago when you, you got an acceleration in inflation in Turkey. And on top of that, you had a breakaway from prudent monetary yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, management where inflation was trending to double figures, and they just sat back and did nothing interest rate wise. And um, I think that's the biggest difference between what we do locally in SA and what's happened in Turkey. The biggest difference, there's a lot of similarities, um, especially all the, the stuff that led up to this. But the big difference is the the, uh, the monetary management of the economy. We are very prudent, the SA Reserve Bank, and it's independent, while about two years ago, you know, the. The Turkish, uh, Turkish Central Bank lost all its independence. Um, and that is the cause of the crisis at the moment. There's a lot of other factors that lead up to that, but that's the, the major point that the... Uh, central uh, Bank
0: independence. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. it's a good point. And, and we still have it. All we've been through, we still have a great yeah. Central Bank. Let's go to Elon Musk and Tesla and his tweet delisting at $420. I, I mean, the Jensen the, the Cowboy, his cars are great by all accounts. He's going to Mars, sounds like fun, etc. etc. But you we were saying before we came on, I mean, mm. not with my capital. Yeah. This is not how you run a company. You don't do important, massively important statements on Twitter. I mean, he, he's going to get SEC in lawsuits left, right and center.
2: Yeah, and it, it seems to me he's got a bit of a, a childish, cowboyish yeah. behavior with regards to uh, and a rivalry with, with, with the short side of the market, with hedge funds. You know, um, He just sent uh, David Anon, who short the company, uh, uh, All, you old know, short uh, yeah, a parcel of shorts, you know, as a joke. Um, so, you know, that that's funny for the moment, but it shows a bit of his, let's call it, childish arrogance uh, around it, and and a lack of respect for shareholders and, and for the investment community. So, I'm I'm trying to understand why a lot of people are still buying Tesla shares apart from the the, the hype or the, you know, a lot of industries changed the face of you know the uh, of of that industry and of the life as we know it think about the dot-com boom that yeah. we had in 2000s and uh, or what from 98 to 2002 and that ended badly for shareholders yet it it, it it um it created a lot of value for consumers so, you know, the two need not be, you know, in the same Venn diagram. Um, Our
0: first mover is not always the best place to no. be.
2: So let's go to what it was the second mover
0: company, PepsiCo, CEO of Quits, uh, Andrea Neuer, uh, been there since October 2006. I know you're not a fan, you've been focusing on mononationals. you say. Mm. This is perhaps the epitome of multinationals. Mm. But she's done a brilliant job with a company that was mm. always second-run to Coca-Cola. She moved into health snacks, uh, she moved mm. into snacks, then health snacks and water, yeah. and she certainly has changed that company too. Absolutely. When I think of the two, to me, Pepsi would come out perhaps as a preferred.
2: Yeah, and, and one of the reasons why, why this works with companies like Pepsi is if you think about a company like Anoja Boost, AB InBev, um, these companies... Uh, in the FMCG market, they are distribution companies, yeah, and they buy brands. Companies. They buy brands, and the, this can be incremental. They buy brands for whatever price. They're not really interested always in the, in the distribution capabilities of the firm that they're acquiring. They're, interest, uh, they're interested in the brands, so they're buying the brands, and they they hinging that onto their distribution platform. That's what AB InBev has done. And that's what Pepsi PepsiCo have, has done. You know, th- it was a beverages company, and they they've bought. Other brands and just distribute it through that that network uh, quite brilliantly and and that's actually the competitive advantage of these firms and it's not going to go away um, you just need the right person to install the right culture which which I did and um, and just realizing this this competitive advantage, you know, leveraging it.
0: Yeah, SAB Millet, when I bought it in the 90s, I bought them for their trucks and not their beer. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Because they could get their beer absolutely anywhere. You never
0: walked into a pub and didn't have an SAB product. Absolutely. And it was that distribution. We're going for a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at Sasson's Global Equity Fund with Bradley Mitchell. Stay tuned. You. welcome back you're watching global investor still with me in studio because joining us to discuss SASFIN's global equity fund Bradley Mitchell Bradley thanks for, for joining us I, I, I want to touch on a, a relatively new fund I want to come to some nuts and bolts around it yes. I want to first get, get a sense of, of the theme and the thinking around it bottom up versus top down certainly you've got a lot of, of consumer discretionary You've uh, the, the, the 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 apples and the Facebooks which are often in number one and two and
1: maybe a Microsoft thrown in yes.
0: sort of lacking in that space give us some of the thinking of the philosophy behind the fund
1: um, so I think I think the core underlying philosophy, as we've mentioned before, is that this is a, there is a top-down thematic approach to it. We, we are long-term investors by nature, but at the same sense, uh, we want to take high-conviction bets in terms of stock-specific exposure. Uh, so we, we, this is a 30-stock type uh, portfolio, um, and the reason for that is we, you know, we want to be able to know the companies that we invest in extremely well. Um, So relative to the benchmark, you're gonna get a high level of of stock relative, uh, what do you call, a tracking error. Uh, But what we do look at it from both a thematic point of view and from a sector exposure point of view is that we position ourselves um, from that way to ensure that the diversification, both by geography, region, currency, is managed sectorally, and then we dig into the quality of the companies underpinning in order to get the best possible uh, return that we can. Having said that, I think the one thing you mentioned is perhaps there's the, a bit of a, a negative return at the moment and the fund is young. So it's a combination of, of that. I mean, a mm-hmm. short period of time, building up assets initially, mm-hmm. there is that drag in the beginning. So yeah. I think it's unfair to you know, start to measure that mm-hmm. until it's got at least True. a three to five year sort of, track record what I mean by that is your TER, total expense ratio as they call it um, is based on a 12-month average assets yeah. over a time period so when you're ramping up your assets at the beginning you've got this big drag of low assets at, at the beginning so any fixed cost that is used you know to to uh, the admin fees and so on on the fund have a big impact we're at a level now um, at about twenty two and a half million dollars um, in the fund where once that gets into the the sort of base in the next sort of six to, to 12 months yeah. then you'll see a big ratcheting down in the total expense ratio.
0: Do you have a target for the total expense ratio? We do.
1: So there's two basic share classes, one for retailers and sure. one for institutional. Mm. Um, the, on, the, on the global side, the A class has got a 1.45 um, targeted soft cap and the B class has got a 125 targeted soft cap. Okay,
0: because no, I noticed the high number and I thought that, because the fund's not even yet a year old. It'll be a year yeah, on exactly. Um, let, let, let's delve into, you, you talk around top down uh, and, yes. and, and then finding, we're seeing the current emerging market uh, uh, craziness happening. The comment yes. that you make is you, you want to sort of be invested on major global equity exchanges. Correct. If I look at your, 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 your look-through principle on revenue, there's, there's a bit in, in Asia, China, we can debate whether it's emerging market or not. Yes. But you certainly seem to be skewed towards developed markets rather than, than EMs.
1: We, we are, um, particularly if you look at it from the point in terms of where the stocks are actually listed. Um, so then the, the, the exposure looks a lot, lot worse. But it's important, especially when you're looking down to the underlying companies, to understand where the revenue is being generated. At this point in time, mm-hmm. uh, you've still got a fairly strong uh, U.S. market with with strong employment numbers. Uh, you know, uh, strong growth uh, still coming through. Well, it's it's fairly low, and it, uh, you know, it's a, but in comparison and the develop the high base that is coming off mm-hmm. of it, it's still quite strong. Um, and therefore, I don't think we don't feel that the developed market exposure um, is something to throw out yet. You will notice, however, that the European exposure. On and yeah. look through principle, uh, both Europe and if you bring in the UK, UK obviously much much smaller, um, and for obvious reasons in terms of the enormous amount of uncertainty still surrounding Brexit and the details that has to be worked through and whether it's going to happen or not and the impact it's going to have. But even on the European front, I mean, th- so the whole currency blowout that we've seen, the impact that that has on Europe is another reason why mm. we are still a little bit cautious in terms of our, d- particularly European bank exposure. We have no European bank exposure as an example.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, Europe, I mean, we, 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 we were talking, a lot of the, the Turkish banks and the like have got their debt yeah. in EU, but that has implications flowing both ways. Yeah. Now, certainly, we didn't see the euro getting slaughtered today like mm. we did
2: the, the EM currencies. But you saw the banking stocks getting you slaughtered. the BNP, stocks under Yeah, pressure. the most prominent being BNP Paribas and um, the the Spanish bank, can't pronounce the name oh, even. Stay, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Sokjen, I think, also is quite lost. So a lot of the, your, your more Latin banks has got exposure to Eastern Europe. Um, and the, the, I think that a lot of them have, have fallen about between, uh, from 5% to about 15% in the last few days. And I don't think it's over necessarily. Um, I think there's some fallout to come. I think the total exposure um, to Turkey, Turkish debt is about 0.5%. But 0.5% for a leveraged banking sector is a lot Um, You know, there's a there's a big leverage Mm -hmm. (laughs) bank. You know, loan to to equity ratio. So 0.5%. If you are capitalised at 15%, 0.5 or 15%.
0: That's, that's a Social lot. And, yeah. and, uh, my sense is, coming back to you, I mean, you, you talk about the US and if we go back 10 years and look how the d- developed economies have handled that financial crisis, mm. the US was out of the gates in a hurry. Europe came, it's kind of like they went, no disrespect, a siesta first and maybe, and then yes. they, and, and, mm. and I mean in the US, 45% look through exposure in the US but this is the strong economy. We've got S&P exactly. probably on track for beating first quarter and that was the best since 2010. Um, right. Short, GDP, some one-offs in there, but it is an economy that is firing on all cylinders Mm -hmm. and right now in developed marketing space is, is where to be.
1: Yeah, correct, and, uh, and uh, also you know, relative to the, the benchmark which is uh, in the MSCI Morgan Stanley Composite Index or Country World, mm-hmm. which has that emerging market exposure, as I was mentioning mm-hmm. earlier just offline, is your, your China and Asian exposure is actually not underweight relative to your benchmark. So again, when you look at it from a regional and, you know, point of view in terms of diversification, you don't want to take an oversized bet um, in an area where there can be a high level of, of potential risk still a certain level of uncertainty in terms of uh, the re, you know governance and regulation and so on, yeah. on uh, particularly impact as well
0: your your biggest sector so you wanna jump no, in the no, no.
1: biggest sector just dis, uh, consumer
0: discretionary then financials then it Yes. IT and financials are usually when I there when I look at funds. IT often yes. in front. Consumer discretionary smacks to me. What you were saying a moment ago, this is almost the all weather type of thing. drickus was saying, as sure as as not, yeah, a recession is coming. When yes. don't know. Is yes. it coming? Absolutely, it is. And the consumer discretionary strikes me as a sort of companies that if you get them at the right valuations. And you get the right quality companies. They almost all weather and yes, uh, recession will hurt, but they're gonna come
1: out the other side
0: and they're probably gonna
1: eat a few competitors along That's the way so um, and they're uh, almost true bottom draw stock. I think a lot of them also speak to uh, a strong thematic in terms of strong branding and, and, and their control over the market in which they operate. And I don't mean just a market in terms of a region, but I mean a market in terms of the type of industry. Um, So some of the companies, you know, take like an Estee Lauder, uh, which unfortunately is one that, you know, tends to get away from you and you always look at it, the valuation looks a bit expensive. I I don't wear makeup and uh, maybe I should. Um, But, um, you know, that is one where the brand quality is so strong. Uh, that you know exactly that is yeah. one that you can hold in the bottom drawer and be quite confident another one is you know Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy yeah. um, so we have that in the consumer discretion side in contrast to that you on a consumer staple you've got something like a Diageo which contrasts the alcoholic side of yeah. LVMH quite nicely and I think the combination of those two is also quite a nice differentiates and diversification to the mm-hmm. likes of an Annalza Bush for example
0: yeah. uh, Rick, is this what you're talking about that 80% of your portfolio the uh, I suppose people will say it's boring, it, it can be, although they can do spectacular yeah. stuff. But it's that nice base pin that you that
2: you put into Yeah. The and 80% of the portfolio being your core yeah. uh, and one that you wouldn't mind owning through a recession doesn't mean that you have to own a defensive company. Yes. A lot of the, the companies that you've mentioned is defensive companies. doesn't mean that the, the top line is defensive. Is that you, you trust the management and you trust the economics of the business longer term mm. that, and, and you've bought it at a, at a low enough price it doesn't need to be an absolute bargain, but a low enough price that, you, that you're still going to see at the other side of the recession, 10 years on, five years on even, that you're going to see decent long-term returns. And that's what it's about. Uh, at the end of it, quality is defined wrongly by a lot of people. Quality is, is defined as defensive. No, that's not no. what quality means. Quality means the ability of the company to generate returns on capital higher than the cost, the of, cost capital. of capital. And that's, that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. I like that. I, I want to go to your biggest holding, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which, yes. which uh, you know, in, in, in some senses, Berkshire Hathaway is easy. There's a book value, and <laughs> you know that, that Berkshire is a buyer at what what it's below intrinsic yeah, value, whatever he defines that to be. Whatever he defines that to be. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, in there you've got, you've got some Coke, you've got some some a- Amex and others, but you've also got a, a fairly diverse portfolio. To, talk to me, aside from obviously the Warren Buffett part of the story yes. and, and
1: the trips to Omaha, the, the Berkshire story for you. So I think you... you actually uh, touched the nail on the head there in terms of the diversification. I mean that's one of the sort of key factors as to why you consider Berkshire as one of those core holdings in, in a portfolio. You know we're talking about a concentrated portfolio but Berkshire you you, you have this perception of it as a concentrated holding mm. but in actual fact it's got diverse exposure to sectors of the market yeah. which you can't easily get access to and, and then he's been it got it at really great intrinsic values in the past that's one of the key factors about them is the, the, the simplicity in terms of how he acquires businesses when acquires them uh, being you know patient in terms of getting them at, at, at the right price we're talking about quality we have the same philosophy in terms of you know it's not just about having uh, confidence in terms of the earnings growth or the earnings profile or being able to earn a return in excess of your your working out ar- you know weighted average capital cost of capital uh, but it's also in terms of having that you know confidence in that the earnings is going to come through and you know that's one of the sort of criteria that you will sort of look at um, I think the other thing I mean we've seen those results I mean this is a large company to generate yeah, revenue yeah. this last number is 19 percent year on year um, and uh, net income growth in excess of 180. granted the one thing you have to take into consideration is you know the important part is the new accounting principles that came in sure sure but having said that i mean you know warren uh, himself stated that how he hates that and you know trying to re-emphasize the point i love the fact that he reports on a friday afternoon after the markets, giving the market time to absorb all the information mm-hmm. and work through it and actually realize, okay, this time around, we've got a, a positive kicker again in terms of that market-to-market on the investment uh, holdings. Uh, but unfortunately, it can have a quick swing the other day, just depending on the day in which you, you, you measure in which it. you actually report yeah. yeah.
0: he's got great stuff. I mean, Geico and almost a for the US economy. We've got about half a minute to go. He's got a giant cash pile, which frankly, he struggles to spend. He talks about an elephant gun. I think he now needs bigger than an elephant gun. Does does that create
1: a bit of a drag, or are you comfortable with that? I think uh, we're comfortable with that in terms of knowing, and this is the point about it, he's got a good track record mm-hmm. in terms of uh, being patient about acquiring businesses at the right value.
2: He's waiting for a recession. Absolutely. <laughs> we saw that in 2008. Exactly. So
1: sitting at, I mean, you know he's more comfortable with having that level closer mm-hmm. to $20 billion. He's currently sitting at north of 111. Yeah. Um, so, I think when the time is right, maybe the other t- uh, talk, the one disappointing part that came out that everybody was looking for, was obviously the talk about uh, share buybacks and mm. returning some cash to shareholders, which there was almost no mention of, um, but hopefully that will, you know, its one other option that he can implement, but again, he's not willing to do that unless it's close to intrinsic no, but, value. But two great points, patience, which is important, and recessions, they
0: will come and yeah. then he will uh, jump in them. Uh, that's the show for this week, my thanks to our guests. Tricus Kronbrink from KP Craft, Bradley Mitchell, fund manager at Sassfin. Thank you very much for watching. I'll catch you same time, same place next week. Have a good evening.